Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 26th, 2017. This is episode 1992 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Wednesday. That means it's time for an interview. I have a guest on that I feel like I know, even though today's actually the first time I ever actually got to talk to him like verbally. Uh, I've been chatting with this guy by email and such since about 2008. That's how long he's been listening to the show. He's a cool guy. Back when I first met him, he was working for the space program and one of the uh, one of the guys that worked on the shuttle. And uh, he, uh, of course, ended up without a job eventually, thanks to Obama shutting down basically almost the entire space program, and certainly canceling the Constellation program you'll hear a little bit about today. Uh, before that, you know, he was a paramedic. And after that, he became a school teacher, both public and private, and now teaches at university. He's an author. He's done a lot of cool things. He's here to talk to us today, kind of the view of a an outsider becomes an insider, and then what does it look like when you're inside the education system, when you haven't gone from high school to college to teaching? When you've actually lived in the real world for multiple decades and then go into school teaching, what's it really like? Is it, is it, is it as bad as Jack says it is? You want to know the answer to that? Well, you'll find out in just a bit. Before, before that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine? Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home. Up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Tactical Redneck Equipment. They provide both fun and practical gear for those times. You need to add a little redneck to your tactical kit. Check them out on the TSP Business Directory or at tacticalredneckequipment.com. With that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1992, because the episode is 1992. And I have two from Alex Shrug today. I have the Rodney King riots and the reason for good people for to be armed. And I have We Want No Accents Here, also by Alex Shrug. Notable births, Die Walker Vyash, developer of the first mind-controlled wheelchair, can be operated by people suffering from paralysis. Miley Cyrus, daughter of Billy Ray Cyrus, started Disney's Hannah Montana, and now a singer in her own right. 
guess if you want to call her that. Taylor Lautner, Jacob Black in the Werewolf on Twilight. Uh, Kayla Skoldarlerio, Teresa in the Maze Runner. You can see as we go forward, there's more and more people that I do not know. Um, and it says, in many more listed here, we'll start Nickelodeon or Disney Channel shows of this writing made on their way to be good acting and singing careers as young adults. This year in film, Disney's Aladdin. It will get complaints from the Arab community. Hey, I thought the Prince of Egypt was all goofed up too, but it was a fun movie. Um, a Few Good Men, Tom Cruise plays a Navy lawyer defending two Marines from the charge of murder. I liked that movie at the time. Uh, it seems a little hokey now, but I liked it at the time. Sister, sister Act, Whoopi Goldberg escapes gangsters by disguising herself as a nun. Hilarity and singing ensue. I don't like Whoopi Goldberg, but that's probably the best thing she's ever done other than playing Guidon on Star Trek. And Wayne's World, My Cousin Vinny, and Free Jack starring Incredible Mick Jagger. This year in film... The Tonight Show debuts, well, with Jay Leno. Johnny Carson retired in 91. Rush Limbaugh Show. Rush says it takes too much time compared to radio. I would agree. That's why I do an audio podcast. Ross Perot buys TV time to explain his plan to fix America. He's running for president mostly to block President Bush, the elder, from a second term, which he will successfully do. Sinead O'Connor rips up a picture of Pope John Paul II on Saturday Night Live. Alex says, fine, but I tune in to laugh. Sinead, shut up and sing. Alex shrugged. Um... I will say I actually think it was a protest in regard to the abuse of children by the Catholic Church and the cover-up. And while I'm not a huge Sinead O'Connor fan, it's kind of right. Just saying. This year in music, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Very difficult vocals to achieve. Excellent works of Alex Frug. Not a fan of Whitney Houston, but that is one of the most incredible songs I've ever heard a person sing. Uh, smells Like Team Spirit from uh, Nirvana. It is a uh, completely nonsensical song, but was a huge hit. I remember liking it myself. End of the Road from Boys to Men. Um, that was a decent song. And Tears in Heaven, Eric Clapton sings in memory of his son who died last year at four years of age. That's a heartbreaking song, honestly, but one I really like. This year in video games, Kirby's Dream Land is released in Nintendo Game Boy. Wolfstein 3D popularizes first-person shooter game. Sega Night Trap is pulled from the market for its mature content. Why do they call it mature when it seems immature, says Alex. And Philips Compact Disc Interactive is a flop. I have contributed, I may have contributed to its failure. This is as Alex Strug says, I may have contributed to its failure. I did our early R&D on CDI and found that an IBM PC game was about on par with it. This, that may have led to the game developers passing it by, says Alex Shrugged. In other news, Stella Lilac sues McDonald's for selling her hot coffee. I think we remember that if we're old enough to. Randy Weaver surrenders to federal authorities after an 11-day standoff. He, his wife, and son are dead. It's all caused by a typo in a letter informing him to appear in court. The court date was incorrect, but how would he know that when he did not show up for court? Federal officials assumed he was resisting government authority. Bang, bang, you're dead. Uh, yeah, that's not the nation's finest hour there. Ross Perot ends his presidential campaign, and Ross Perot restarts his presidential campaign. Natural disasters this year, 6.7 magnitude earthquake hits Turkey, killing 652. A 7.7 earthquake hits Nicaragua, killing 116. Hurricane Andrew hits Florida, killing 23. 5.8 magnitude earthquake hits Cairo, hit, killing 545. And a 7.8 earthquake hits Indonesia, killing 2,500. Um, the Hurricane Andrew hitting Florida... The reason I remember that so much is so much of these, these years, 90, 91, 92, and 93, I don't remember because I was serving in the military overseas. But Hurricane Andrew affected us in Panama, which is where I was in 1992. 
And how did it affect us? Our APO box, uh, which is where your mail comes through, was at Howard Air Force Base, which was pretty much wiped off the map by Hurricane Andrew. So a lot of our mail was delayed, uh, which to a soldier is a big deal in the days before email. And we none of us had computers and email back then. Uh, let's take a look. There's a lot of stuff here. I really recommend you check out this page. It's, it's just, as we get closer in time to current day, there's more knowledge about what happens. There's a tremendous amount of bullet points in this one. But I'm going to read the Rodney King riots and the reason good people to be armed. Last year, at a high speed, after a high-speed chase, Rodney King stopped his car and seemed to be resisting arrest. Actually, he was drunk and using poor judgment. He was brutally beaten with nightsticks by LAPD officers while attempting to take him into custody. This was all caught on tape, and the four officers were charged with assault. I've reviewed the tape, and I can only guess what the officers were thinking. Some guesses would exonerate the officers, and others would not. Apparently, the jury believed that the officers acted correctly, so they walked free. The black community is outraged. Thus begins six days of riding in Los Angeles. Reginald Denny is pulled out of his truck and beaten within an inch of his life, but he isn't the only one. The police cannot stop them. Society has totally broken down. It is one of the largest cities in the world. My take by Alex Shrugged. I was many miles away during the riot, but I grew up in the L.A. area, and I'd worked in South Central L.A. Actually, I was the only one of my company who could send there and not get, and not get beaten up. I watched the tension build over the years. The Rodney King beating simply set it off. In the media, black people were portrayed as the underdog, always taken advantage of. Koreans were portrayed as greedy, distrustful people who ran grocery stores only to take advantage of the poor. Frankly, the complaint sounded a lot like the ones made against Jews. Alex Shrugged is Jewish, by the way. Koreans knew they were a target, so when the riots began, they were armed and ready to protect their own, as they should. As I said, I was miles away, but my daughter was threatened with a gun that day. I realized that if my home was attacked, that, 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 that the only protection I could offer was to block the door with my dead body. I was willing to do that, but I would have been, been better armed. I am a good man who needs a weapon to protect his family when the police cannot help. When is that? When things are their worst, not when things are their best. Indeed. Um, this is another thing I missed. I learned all about the Rodney King beatings in late 1993 when I got home. Um, I don't know what it's like to be a deployed soldier today. I'm sure that you know less about what's going on than when you're here in the States, but I'm sure you know more than we did back then because, you know, we didn't have an Internet. We didn't have emails. I mean, we, we communicated with people mostly through mail because even using the military uh, phone service was still expensive. You could only get so much cut off of your long distance. And remember, this is 1992 when people actually had long distance and long distance was expensive. There's no Skype. Um, so you might make a phone call once a month, um, especially on a, you know, a private or a specialist salary, um, and, and just didn't have TV. We just didn't have TV. Like one out of... 20 of us would have TV, and again, it was like the AFI's channel and a VCR to watch movies on. I mean, and, and that was very rare. We didn't spend a lot of time hanging out around the barracks, because if you hang around the barracks too long, somebody shows up and finds something for you to do. So when you're off duty, you get the hell out of there. Um, it's, it's just, a, it amazes me when I, I look back at the history, and I'm like, I remember all this. And then when I look at when it actually happened, I'm like, no, you don't remember this. You remember finding out about this after you came home. It's, it's just an interesting way to, to look at history, I think. And I, I'd actually be interested to hear from some of you guys that have served overseas, whether in combat or not, it doesn't matter, just out of the country. Um, specifically, you know, not, you know, not your first world countries where you have 
all the services and things like that. You know, um, serving in the mountains of Honduras, we, I mean, we made one phone call every three months there over a six month deployment when they had sat, sat phone set up for us to do that. And we had to get in line to do it. Um, you just don't know. I'd like to know what it's like to come, you know, how do you feel today when you come home and how different everything is? I think it's a, an interesting concept that to realize that even when we live through the same time, not all of our history is the same as it's remembered. Even if, we, even if you're not revising it, just the experiences you had going through the history changed the context of history. Uh, that's important when we understand that that's true of people who have written history for us that we didn't experience. That they also wrote it through the context of their experience, even if they didn't mean to revise it. I'm sure that if you read the history of the uh, American Revolution, uh, written by uh, a Canadian uh, at the time, uh, or a British subject at the time, or even, let's say, a German at the time, it would read differently than written by a, a, a person that was an American of the time, even if they were reporting the same, result, result, uh, the same thing and doing so accurately. It's just an important thing, I think, to consider when we look at history. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, The Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today. Click on members to learn more and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. And with that, I want to welcome our special guest today, Gregory Cecil. He is an author. Uh, master's degree, worked as a paramedic for 22 years before changing careers, became an aerospace technician. He went on to work uh, as a senior aerospace composite technician for the space shuttle program uh, three months after graduating from school, worked on all three remaining space shuttles during his time there. Gregory earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. After he was laid off from the space shuttle program, Gregory became a Florida State certified educator, taught high school and middle school science in both public and private schools. Today he's working with uh, school-aged children all over the country through his uh, through his company called Aerostem. He's also now a college professor. He's a great guy. He's been listening to the show since all the way back in 2008. And with that, I want to say, hey, Greg, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Yes. Hey, uh, Jack, I'm glad to be here, and uh, it's quite an honor to have an opportunity to speak with you. I've been following you since gee, 2008, 2009, so it's uh, it's good to finally chat. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like I know you, even though I think it's the first time we've ever actually talked verbally uh, for, for over all those years. Um, we're, we have you on today to talk about kind of a unique subject. Basically, the way I put it is it, 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 an outsider becomes an insider within public education and you know, going to give us their, their view of what it's like in the world of government education, plus a bunch of other stuff. Um, you have a history that includes aerospace and, and working for, for the shuttle program, and now you've got some other cool stuff going on with encouraging children to go into STEM uh, stuff. But can we 
like rewind back to Gregory Cecil is sitting in like eleventh grade study hall trying to figure out what the heck to do with his life and kind of what leads you, what at least leads you halfway down the path that gets you to where you are today. Well, it, it's. It, It's life. It's a very wandering path. Everybody thinks you go straight from point A to point B, and that's not true. You wander all over the place before you make it to point B. Um, what I did was is my senior year, I was already 18 years old, and we had had an accident in the family. A brother of mine got cut badly, and I tried to do first aid, and luckily he survived uh, despite my care. And, uh, you know, trying to remember the old Boy Scout first aid stuff. And um, so afterwards, I told my mother, uh, she had thanked me for helping, and I told my mother, I said, I, I need another first aid course. So I um, happened the next week seeing the local paper. They're offering an EMT, emergency medical technician course. And as a typical high school boy, I didn't ask somebody that knew something. I went and asked my friends. I said, what is this? And they said, oh, it's a first aid course. I said, oh, okay, that's what I need. So I went, and the first night in class, they're talking about ambulances and oxygen and everything else, and I'm like, whoa. And um, <laughs> I ended up staying and um, eventually went away to college to be a preacher of all things. Did that for a year and decided, no, I really liked emergency medicine. So I came back home, went to the community college, got my paramedic, and then I spent the next 22 years uh, working as a paramedic. And so, I mean, 22 years, a lot of times people have that kind of time into something. You can't blast them out of there with a stick of dynamite. How many careers have you had? You've kind of moved around a lot. Well, let's see. I've had paramedic. I've had data processing. I've uh, worked uh, for a couple years down in Dallas uh, for EDS at their Plano facility. Uh, I've been to, 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 to uh, aerospace, worked on the space shuttle program, and um, then I became a school teacher and taught middle school, both public and private schools. And then um, now I am a college professor. I teach graduate students in aviation, and I also run a nationwide schools to space program where we're trying to encourage kids to become aerospace technicians to work on spacecraft. What made you decide to go into the, the field of education? I mean, when I first met you online anyway, you were, you know, like I said, we, you were working on the this, this shuttle program. Um, if I remember correctly, you kind of took a sabbatical after that. And mm -hmm. the reason you left isn't like, gee, I don't want to do this anymore after all of this study to get here. It was, you know, they basically shut the program down. Yeah, um, what I wanted to do was stay with the uh, space program until I retired, and unfortunately, that just wasn't going to happen. And the follow-on program was called Constellation. Uh, we already had seven years' worth of work and $9 billion invested, and Mr. Obama gave us a gift by canceling the program and putting tens of thousands of us out of work. And... Um, I got a nice severance pay. My wife and I RV'd around the country for about a year and a half, and um, I ran a blog. In fact, it was hosted on your site uh, at the time. It kind of was a personal blog called rv-103.com, talking about our RV adventures, but it eventually morphed into a space advocacy blog. I just couldn't stay away from space. And um, we got back, 
and I had been trying to find work, and I spent two years and four months unemployed, and I, and I didn't think I would have that kind of problem because I have a master's degree, but uh, there was just such a surplus of unemployed workers and very few jobs at the time that um, I couldn't find anything. And people kept telling me, I said, man, you got to go teach. And, uh, and the reason they say that is because from my paramedic days throughout my aerospace days, I was always the one that was the mentor or helping the new trainee, doing a little teaching and stuff like that, and uh, doing presentations and, and everything. So they, um, they, they, my friends kept in, insisting, you've you got to go teach. So I looked it up uh, with the state of Florida and uh, found out as an outsider I could apply for a teaching certificate, a temporary teaching certificate. And uh, so I did, and uh, they looked at my degree. Now, my degree is a master's in aeronautical science. And um, somebody in the education department just saw the word science and said, oh, he can be a science teacher. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I took the test and, uh, and did just fine. Uh, you know, I, I'm now certified to teach science for grades 5 through 9 and earth space science grades 9 through 12. And so I'm now officially smarter than a fifth grader, okay. um, certified by the state. And um, so I went and um, got into a program called Project Smart with uh, Hillsborough County, which is the eighth largest school district in the nation, uh, based out of Tampa, Florida. And uh, spent about a year in classes while I was teaching in the classroom and got my certification and spent, I think, about a year and a half in the public school system uh, as a middle school science teacher. And then I left there and went to a private school and spent another year and a half teaching in a private school as a middle school science teacher. Okay. And uh, when you did all that, I mean... Part of it, does, you know, a lot of people go into teaching because that's what they want to do. It sounds mm -hmm. to me like you you had a, an affinity for it, but it wasn't your first choice. No, um, it wasn't. you didn't go into it like many who are like the the 22 and 23 year olds out of college who right. have never had a job in their life and are going to go prepare children for careers. You've had multiple careers, that, and you've had the types of careers that teachers promise that children can get if they get a good education. And then you come back into that as an educator for children. How did that fit with your expectations when you when you did that? Um, as a father and as a taxpayer, I was absolutely outraged with what I see in the public school system, and we'll get into that. Okay. Um, I found I had an advantage over the other teachers because you had those those kids that went from high school directly into teaching college and then directly into teaching classroom. They had no life experiences. And I came in with all these life experiences. And within the first year, I had my kids uh, developing science payloads that was flown by high-altitude balloon 20 miles up to the edge of space. And... Um, We were launching rockets. We were, we were doing all kinds of different science experiments uh, about atmospheric pressure and, and, and things like that. And my kids really got quite a well-rounded um, education when it came to science, uh, at least I think because of all these life experience and real-world examples I could show them, you know, how science fits in with medicine, how it fits in with aerospace, how it fits in with your everyday life. And, uh, and show them that, yes, there is a connection. This is not all theory. This is how we use it in the real world. And 
the reaction, uh, and, and it was funny, um, my eighth graders had to take a science test at the beginning of the year to get a base idea where they were. And then at the end of the school year, uh, they took the very same test again. Now, the school district would celebrate if they went up 1%, maybe 2% in improvement. Uh, my kids went up 9%. And part of that is because I taught them the old school way, repetition, repetition. Yes, there's some memorization you got to do. And, you know, and we always went back and, and, you know, like when we did scientific method, we, I would teach that and then we would go further into uh, a program going something, but I always would touch back and say, all right, tell me where does this fit in the scientific method? What step are we at? And, you know, constantly reviewing and, and constantly doing that repetition. And, um, I thought the school administration would be very happy about it, but actually they were upset. They, uh, they were pretty much, who do you think you are? And, you know, you're a first year teacher. Why are you doing these things with these kids? And, and, you know, you shouldn't be doing these things. And, and I'm like, oh, come on. You know, I thought we were here to teach them. And, uh, and really I got the idea that, uh, the school districts, work too hard on worrying about classroom management and babysitting than they do about actually teaching these kids. I, I kind of agree. I kind of feel like that's the only real reason we still have the current school system. Yeah. That, that with the tools available to parents today, um, if we didn't have, you know, I'd say probably 90% of uh, households in America are either single parent or two parent working. If right. that wasn't the case, the, the homeschooling would probably be five, six, 20 times what it is today? Well, maybe uh, and maybe not. Now, when I taught uh, at the public school, I had 139 kids that I had to teach all day uh, that came through my science classes. And when parent-teacher night would come along, I would have maybe seven parents show up. That was the only parents that were interested in how their children were doing. Uh, the other parents I would meet because they would call me in the office because I was too hard on little Johnny or little Jill and, you know, because I expected them to do things. And, yeah. you know, so I was called incompetent and racist and uh, all kinds of names. And, and uh, you know, I'm like, all I'm trying to do is, is make a better life for your child. Don't you care? Yeah. I, I See, I don't know if I really blame parents so much as I blame the whole system, though, because... They've oh, been yeah. basically told it's broken. They've been told to butt out. Basically, parents that get involved yeah. on any meaningful level are told to shut up, and teachers that do a, a, a job better than a one percent improvement are told they're out of their minds and shouldn't be doing that. And mm -hmm. the other side of it is like with the two parent working household, you know, a lot of times those people are just trying to figure out how to keep their life together, let alone go talk to a teacher. And they look at the report card if the kids getting B's and C's and A's, then well, I don't need to go. I think that's how parents feel because they're just worn the hell out. Well, yeah, and part of that is an illusion, too. And when we would get to midterm exams and final exams, I could not post the grade until the district gave me what the curve was going to be. Oh, nice. And I would have kids that would get a 30% on their exam and fail, and I have to wait for the curve. And once the curve came in and I applied the curve, they would walk away with a C or a B. I, you know, I, and, and, of course, be advanced in the next grade, and they're ill-prepared for the next grade. Well, of course they are. And it's, right. and it's I, I think I get a hard time a lot of times for people right. because I'm so tough on the education system. But what you're saying here, 
on one level, it, it just blows me away. But on the, 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 in the heart, all I'm saying is, well, of course. When you were saying how you, you did all these things at your students and they had a 9% improvement and the school would normally be happy with a 1% improvement, I was like, yeah. here it I knew what you were going to say. Yeah. I knew they weren't going to say, you know what, well done, Greg. Why, we're going to make you Teacher of the Year since you've done better. I knew that wasn't going to happen. To give, you give you an example, when we did the mini-cube experiment where the kids flew their science payload to the edge of space. Now, the school I was at was an inner-city school, and, uh, and it had a very bad reputation. Every time we were in the news, it's because some kind of violence happened or whatever. So I invited the news media to come, and they did a story about my kids. When, when the mini-cubes came back from the edge of space, we opened them up. They evaluated their experiments. The, the TV reporter, uh, Grayson Kahn, was, was very good with the kids, having them describe their experiments. Uh, in fact, I sent you the video of that. I've uh, seen it. It was, it was very good. Yeah. And the head of middle school science was there uh, for the entire district. And uh, when we were done, she she said, you know, the $320 that you got the grant for, the school didn't even have to pay for, I feel it was a waste of money and a waste of time. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And that was her parting words. That's the last time I ever spoke to her. I can imagine. It's a waste yeah. of money and a waste of time. To, because yeah. to me, what that did, like, so when I watched that, I was like, I really don't know that any of the stuff these kids send up is going to come back any different, and and I don't think that it did. Um, but what I saw uh, actually what, did we, we had, had some, some things come back, back different. different. Okay. Uh, the, the radish seeds we sent up, yeah, uh, they came back, and all all we did was cut the seed pack in half. One half stayed on Earth; that was our control group. The other yeah. half went up to the stratosphere. Now, to let your listeners know, it's like an alien world up there. It's a near vacuum. It's about 0.01% atmospheric pressure, which is about the same as the surface of Mars, and it is minus 100 degrees. And it is uh, all three forms of ultraviolet radiation will bathe the science payload uh, because you're now above the ozone layer. Okay. And uh, usually only one form of UV radiation actually makes it through the ozone layer, and that's what we get our sunburns from. So uh, very much uh, an alien world up there. And when the seeds came back, we planted them. And, of course, it's not in the TV thing because we had to wait for them to germinate. The experimental seeds germinated faster and grew better than the seeds that we had kept down here on Earth. And I thought, ah, fluke. So the following year when I'm at a private school, uh, we sent up a multitude of seeds, uh, sunflowers, cucumbers, tomatoes, you name it. And uh, we got the exact same result. And one of my little sixth graders uh, had done some research and found a Japanese team in uh, Japan that had sent cherry tree seeds up to the International Space Station, had them mounted on the outside of the station in the vacuum of space and exposed all that radiation in the cold temperatures. And they sat out there for six months, and then they had them return back to Japan. They planted them um, and found out they germinated faster, that they blossomed within five years, and cherry trees usually take about ten years to blossom, and nobody knows why. And, you know, I'm telling my kids, see, see, you're doing real science here. I said, even the real scientists can't figure out why this is happening. But for some reason, being exposed in that environment made them grow better. That That's awesome. I mean, I guess my point, though, was even for the kids, like the one kid sent the popcorn kernels up and expected yeah. them to pop or something, and they didn't, you know. But what I saw was the mind expanded. 
Like yeah. the possibilities expanded, like excitement. And, and the fact that, you know, the head of the, the, the entire middle school department for the district saw that as a waste, that tells you everything. And, and the yeah. way I feel about it is, well, I didn't do it, so this makes me look bad, so I have to, I have to crap on it. That, that's kind of how it feels. Right. Because so. she could have probably got a grant for the whole district to have done that. And then, you know, yes. that would have looked really good. But now you did it first, so – because that's – That's the problem with bureaucracies. It, it all comes down to, to competition for recognition from the master, right? I mean, that, that's just how it seems. Yeah, I, I think some of them felt threatened, and, and they shouldn't have felt threatened. I was there to teach the kids. I wasn't there to take anybody's job. I wasn't there to, to do any of that. I just, you know, my job was to teach these children, so I did my job. And, you know, a lot of people want to bash teachers and uh They try. They come in with the, the idealistic. They really want to do it. It's the system that beats them to death. And uh, I've seen teachers that were in their late 20s that were so bitter and felt trapped already. And I'm like, mm, no, you don't have to be trapped. You can walk away. But they, they felt they couldn't do it. And, uh, and that's a shame. But... You know, we got tens of thousands of dollars in, uh, or literally probably $100,000, $200,000 every year in Title I funds, yet my classroom budget was $75, and I had to pay for my own copier paper. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was nuts. Now, to, to, to uh, contrast that, when I went to the private school, um, it was a local church that had a, a Christian school, and... I walked in, talked to the principal, and, and I told him I would like to do the mini-cube experiment with them and explained what it was. And he looked at me and said, fine, uh, how many cubes do you want to buy? You know, instead of one at 320, yeah. uh, we, I, I, I thought, well, I'll go for it. I said, uh, five? And he said, sure, okay. And uh, the school was going to pay for it, and then it turned out that Raytheon, which is one of our aerospace contractors in the area, got wind of what we were going to do, and they they and one set of parents paid for everything. Unbelievable. And so, Actually completely uh, believable, really. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. if you allow the private sector to help, sometimes, gee, they will, because they're interested in this next generation of, of young people as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they need them. And, and that's one of the things I'm doing with Schools to Space right now is that we've got – I know we're a little off topic with this, but the, the reason I do Schools to Space, I travel around the country and, and do teacher workshops. I also uh, do presentations with students. And we're trying to encourage kids to look at the career of becoming an aerospace technician, which is someone that works on the spacecraft and all the ground support equipment and stuff. Because the average age of an aerospace technician right now at Kennedy Space Center is 53. And things are ramping up. We've got five human spaceflight programs that are going to be flying within the next two to five years. We have OneWeb, which is going to be doing something that's never been done before. They're going to do an assembly line in building satellites. Most satellites are usually built by hand. And they're going to produce 900 satellites that actually are going to surround the Earth. And no matter where you go around the world, you'll be able to access the Internet. And, uh, and they're in dire need for aerospace technicians. They see what's in the pipeline, and there's very few people in the pipeline. I think the local college around Kennedy Space Center graduates 12 um, aerospace technicians every semester. But they're looking at needing thousands. Sure. And, uh, and 
we're hurting. And, and so that's what I'm trying to do with School Space is let these kids know, hey, it's not just astronauts that work in the space program, but it is tens of thousands of support staff, everything from the janitors to the cafeteria to lawyers to accountants to aerospace technicians and engineers and so on that everybody can have a role and everybody can have an opportunity to be part of something a lot, lot bigger than themselves. You know, you're making me think of right now, as there was, I don't know if you're probably familiar with Penn and Teller. And yeah, uh, they're, yeah. They're magicians. They're also very, very hardcore libertarians. Mm-hmm. And I remember they did an episode one time of their show Bullshit, and they were talking about wasting government. And when they got to the space program, they said, Now, this is a tough one for us because we hate government and we hate government spending. But right. if there's one thing government does that's actually cool and to the benefit of everybody, it's space exploration. Yes. You know, and, and I kind of feel like that was the way everybody felt. And do you think this kind of like hole in the pipeline has a lot to do with all of the defunding by the Obama administration? Because I'm all for cutting government. I, I'm very much well, in with Penn and Teller. But, but like the stuff they continue to waste money on. And the concept of being able to actually learn from – because the, the space program, I don't know if the people realize how much in our lives is better today as private individuals because of things that were learned through the space program. Um, yeah, NASA puts out every year a uh, spinoff book. And it shows all the different technology spinoffs that we get out of the space program. Uh, give me an example. It's like when we were going to the moon, uh, we needed food safety standards because uh, the last thing you want is the astronauts have any food poisoning or anything like that, spoilage, you know, spoiled food and stuff while they're trying to go to the moon. And so they got together with Pillsbury, and Pillsbury developed these food safety standards that ended up being applied to our entire industry. And uh, and because you can go and eat a can of ravioli and not get sick, you can thank NASA for that because of the Apollo program. And, you know, these are different kinds of spinoffs. Some of them are direct, and you can see directly that it, it came from NASA. Other ones are very indirect, like the food safety program, that you may not recognize that that actually came as a result of the space program. Uh, the computer revolution, same way. We need integrated circuits that were costing uh, hundreds of dollars per circuit. NASA said, no, we need them cheaper. We need better ways made, and they... Uh, put the seed money out there for manufacturers to find different ways to make better integrated circuits. And now you've got your iPhones with these integrated circuits that are much, much cheaper. And, you know, it's incredible, uh, uh, some of the stuff. For every dollar you invest in NASA as a taxpayer, you get $6 back in spinoffs. And now uh, you tell me an investment fund that you can do that well in. I, I don't know of one, and I mean, right. I, you know, as a, as a pure voluntarist, I still have an objection to the money being taken without my consent. However, the money is going to be taken without my consent anyway. Yes. So when I look at things the government does with money, kind of, I look in like the, in the, the place that I would put it in the benign category would be, you know, building roads, um, mm-hmm. exploring the outer reaches of our of our solar system, things like that. They go in the benign category. They, you know, we're not we're not we're at least not yet. We're not killing people with our you know our space program. Right. And uh, it just it just seems to me like I remember being a kid. I grew up in Florida and Pennsylvania, but my, my young childhood in Florida in Jacksonville, which is you know an hour and a half drive down to the Kennedy Space Center. Right. And I grew up 
like I was going to be an astronaut until I found out, like, because I wanted to fly shit, right? That's what I wanted to do. And, like, I'm blind in one eye. Well, you, you don't fly aircraft in the military, let alone spacecraft, with one eye missing. So, you like, that kind of took the wind out of me. But I remember being a little kid. You know, I remember watching shows like Mr. Rogers and an astronaut came on, and he had moon rocks. And it was like, I remember telling my grandmother, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the moon, and I'm going to eat moon rocks and make earrings out of it and stuff like that. And it seems like kids used to grow up with that dream of being involved in something that big. And mm-hmm. even if they couldn't do it as a, you know, an astronaut, they, they would find, well, there's all these other things you can do to be involved with this. And it just seems like, it seems to me, like when, when everything got defunded by the Obama administration, it kind of took the wind out of what was left of that or something. Like, I don't yeah. hear kids saying they want to grow up and be an astronaut anymore. Right. There, there, there's a reason why Obama defunded it. Obama said that he did not like American exceptionalism. Now, the most exceptional thing we have is our space program. And uh, when he first was running for president, he, he said he would defund NASA and put it into education or indoctrination. And then, uh, of course, when he was trying to win the vote in Florida, he showed up here and said, oh, no, no, I'm going to continue the program. I'll pay the money. And But I, I told my friends, I said, he's going to kill it. Uh, if he gets elected, he'll kill it. And sure enough, he did. And it took him less than 45 minutes. He did it on April 15, 2010. He showed up at Kennedy Space Center. They did not allow any Space Center employees into the building uh, because they didn't want any YouTube moments. They only had supporters in there. And he, in less than 45 minutes' time, he, he killed the entire Constellation program and set us back almost 10 years. I want to go back to the school stuff here because this is what yes. we have you on for. But real quick, can you tell people what the Constellation program was and what it was working to do? Constellation, uh, the idea of Constellation was there was going to be two rockets, the Ares-1 and the Ares-5. Ares-1 would carry a crew in a capsule called Orion, and Ares-5 would carry the lunar module and all supplies. Um, and they would link up in orbit, then go to the moon descend to the moon, and we were actually going to build a base there. It wasn't going to be flags and footprints anymore. We are actually going to go there and live and, and have a base. And then from there, go on to Mars and beyond. Uh, it's a lot cheaper to launch from the moon uh, because it's one uh, when we're talking about energy required because it's only one-sixth gravity. Uh, there is water on the moon that's hidden in the lunar regolith, so you can break water down into hydrogen and oxygen, which is rocket fuel. And, um, you know, so if, and plus the ability to learn to live on another world that's only three days travel away before we make the big leap to go to Mars. A lot of people don't understand how far Mars, how yeah. far away Mars is. That's an 18 month round trip. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, and it's actually, the Earth is further away from Mars than it is from Venus. I can't remember how many millions of miles, but uh, it's it's quite a distance and quite a leap. And and those astronauts, when they would go, would literally be on their own uh, because once you're on Mars, even the radio back, it takes 15 minutes at the speed of light before a radio signal could come back to Earth and then for the NASA to formulate a reply and then send it back, and they'd have to wait another 15 minutes before the crew on Mars would get that message. So you're talking they're really, truly on their own. I mean, I've always kind of, like, when we talk about it, always thought, not just a base, but we should almost have, like, a small town or almost a pseudo-city on the moon before we start talking about jacking around with Mars so that we can figure this stuff out. Because, like you mentioned, with modern technology, if we were still doing it, um, it's, you know, it can be accomplished in three days. So you could actually send a rescue craft to the moon. You ain't sending a rescue craft to freaking Mars. It's not happening. And... um, 
I, I want to stop there though because I have some questions about the the, the, kind of the private companies kind of coming in and what you think of that. But I want to go back to schooling for a second, okay? Um, because you have come in from this totally different world for most teachers. Um, I just saw a news story. I don't have all the specifics yet, but basically Donald Trump's signing an executive order today that's basically yanking control to a large degree away from the federal government yeah, over the states. That. And I, I'm kind of encouraged about that. But what it makes me think of is No Child Left Behind. Of course, it came in under Bush and then was expanded yeah. under Obama. What do you we feel? Call, we, we call No Child Left Behind. The running joke in the education circles is No Child Moves Forward. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what what is the effect of that? Obviously, not a good one. And how does that compare to, like, old-fashioned teaching? I mean, I grew up with... You know, yes, memorization, but it wasn't memorization of useless minutiae. It was memorization of, of, of the, the, the main ideas and concepts that allowed you right. then to interpret, interpret and articulate, you know, rhetoric, basically be, to be able to take in new information, use the information you had, and then spit out ideas of the two being connected together. How does that compare with No Child Left Behind, Common Core, that type of stuff? Uh, no Child Left Behind, uh, unfortunately, meant that... Um, <laughs> That the kids that were a problem, and uh, uh, some of them were actually in the classroom under court order, <laughs> at least where I was teaching. Uh, it, it was a rough school. Um, no child got a chance. Uh, other children, because of this disruptive nature of a few children, no other child in that class could get an education. And they would get cheated out of it. Uh, if if we started making traction and my kids would start learning, you know, and I have that one or two that that would decide that they're going to cause all kinds of disruption and stuff. And a few of them threatened to come to my house and shoot me. So you know, it's it's interesting. But um, you know, that, that that made it rough. And and I would send them out uh, if they got to the point they were just disrupting the class too much. I send them to the principal's office and say, get out, go. And, you know, that way I could resume teaching because I still have the majority of these kids in the classroom that want to learn. And then the principal's office would kick them back, send them right back to me. Yeah. So then the kids know that nothing can be done to them. And, and then I would get called in the office and chewed out because I can't manage my classroom. And I'm thinking I am managing my classroom. If you've got one that is disruptive like that and has is hell-bent on making sure nobody learns in the classroom, you get rid of them. You yeah. send them on their way. I mean, that's what happened when I was in yeah. school. And it didn't happen yeah. often because it was bad, right? You, yeah. Like, you didn't want to get sent to the dean or the vice principal or whatever, and now they don't give a damn. And I wish I could tell you that your experience is unique. My sister-in-law is a teacher. She's mm -hmm. explained the exact same scenario teaching second grade. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's one thing when these kids are bowing up to teachers and all when they're like 15 and 16. But second grade, man, when I was in second grade, you were scared of your teacher, man. You didn't you didn't mess around, and you certainly didn't want to go see the principal or what have you. And That's she right. said it's the exact same thing. These kids would threaten her. They would say, mm -hmm. you can't do anything. She'd kick them off to the principal's office, and then she'd just, five minutes later, they'd come walking right back in. They wouldn't do anything to them at all. Right. And she was prohibited from doing any kind of real discipline. Yeah. My school had a 1,000 students, and... During the last two weeks before final exams, they took the top 60, 60, just 60, offenders and suspended them for the last two weeks of school. They said, you're out of here. Finally, someone got some common sense. The character of the school changed overnight. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then one week later, 
The parents, who now had to deal with these 60 kids at home and didn't want to deal with them, complained and screamed and yelled. And so they allowed the kids to come back. Of course, those kids knew nothing could be done to them. And that last week of school for finals week was a disaster. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was nuts. And and I know when I left... Uh, and it was funny, uh, under this Project Smart, uh, of all these outside people who have been brought in to become teachers, there were 10 of us that started out at the school. Uh, you know, of course, the rest of them were scattered around the district. But for my school, there were 10 of us. And by the end of the school year, I was the last one left. Everyone else had left. They, they said, I, had, I saw one woman, after she'd been threatened so many times, uh, she was only a month into it and left. And she said, I'm going back to marketing. That's what she used to do. She said, this is ridiculous. And um, But I was the last outside professional left at the end of the school year. And when I got done in school year, I told my wife, I said, I'll dig ditches before I go back. <laughs> and uh, and then that's when I went into a private school and started teaching there. I, and, and I'll tell you, again, I wish I could tell you that it's unique because I know you were kind of in a rough area, like an inner yeah. city school. This same crap goes on at my sister-in-law's school, and they are in – you know, one of the good school districts, as they put it, and it's yeah. it's it's upper middle class. I wouldn't say it's wealthy or affluent, but it's 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 middle class to upper middle class. You know, everybody that's in that school is living in a house that's one hundred fifty thousand dollars or more, paying yeah. high property taxes. It's not it's not like it's because there's a lack of funding, but it's the same crap. It's it's maybe not as gang like, but it's the same crap, and it's because. The system now is going to create that that output, and yeah, I'd like no, to hear what you think no about the child left behind. Yeah, no. Ch- well, I mean, and people pointed out to me one time when I was kind of putting that down that well, you know, when you were in the army, didn't you have a rule that you ran at the speed of the slowest man in the formation? And my mm-hmm. response was, yes, we did, but there was a minimum standard for that person, and if that person couldn't maintain their minimum standard. Then they fell out and they went to a remedial PT or they ended up chaptered out of the freaking army. It's yep. not like you could you could barely move at a snail's place and then the whole unit would slow down with you. The, the, what that actually meant was we would run at the minimum standard unless everybody was capable of more. And the goal was to make everybody capable of freaking more a little bit more every day. And, and that's a very different thing where what you're saying is if one person wants to sit on their head – then everybody has to sit around while that person sits on their head. Yeah, it, it's it, and and the fact that people defend this and want to throw more money at it just dumbfounds me. It really does. Um, yeah, it, it's frustrating, and uh, and it was very frustrating. I, I mean, I've been working since I was twelve years old. You know, I was a paper boy. That was my first job, and uh, teaching was the hardest job I ever had, and. Uh, it, it, I, I, even working on the space shuttle was easier, <laughs> yeah. and uh, but it was it was a very difficult and tough job because you have a quote unquote workforce there that doesn't want to be there. That's the students, and uh, because that's the last thing they want to do is be sitting in a classroom. But you know there are ways to make it interesting and and also to teach them that yes, there is a time to play, but there's a time we work. Yeah. And, you know, and you're teaching them all these soft skills that they need for a job. I remember one kid told me, uh, I, I said, you know, what I'm trying to teach you is going to help you when you go for a job someday. And he looked at me square in the face. He says, why? I'm going to be on welfare. I don't need to worry about a job. Oh, man. You know, 
And, you know, of course I came back at him. You gotta, you always gotta win. <laughs> you yeah. know, you don't, don't let him get the upper hand. And I just laughed and I said, do you really think it's going to be there when you grow up? And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, because people like me are very, very tired of paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, so maybe you ought to think about getting a job someday because it's not going to be there for you. Boy, if you get that caught to the principal, you get your ass balled out about that. Um, I did. I did. How was the contrast with um, with private school? Like Private school uh, had a lot more leeway. Uh, first of all, I didn't have Common Core, so uh, that, that was nice. I actually got to, to write my own curriculum. And, uh, and, high, and, and if we got stuck in an area somewhere where we really need, you know, they just weren't quite getting it, I didn't have a schedule I had to keep going and say, well, nope, too bad, we got to move on. We would stay there until they mastered it. And then we could move on. In some areas, they mastered very quickly, and so we didn't have to waste any more time on it. We could move on to another uh, topic or subject. And so I had a lot more leeway, a lot more freedom. And they really, you know, with the parents were involved uh, in the public school administration. They don't like parents being involved. They deride them or, or degrade them by calling them helicopter parents because they hover over their children. But with, with private school, almost every single parent is a helicopter parent. When I had... 60, first of all, my class sizes were smaller. I only had a total of 60 students, and I was teaching 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And on parent-teacher night, we had to do it for two nights in a row because we couldn't get all the parents fitted in in one night. That was how many parents were coming. I would say probably 99% of the students had their parents come and were involved and really wanted to know what was going on. And... And it was nice. I could send out an email every week, let them know how the kids were doing in science. I had a newsletter. I called it Lab Notes. And uh, that way the parents understood what was happening, what assignments were due and everything. And they made sure their kids got it done. And uh, it, it, it was a totally different world. So you and said it was it, the hardest job you ever had. Would you say that's not true then about private school, that that was not the hardest job you ever had? Uh, it was still... It, it was still difficult. Uh, administration was not a problem. Um, There's still kids. I mean, you know, it's like yeah. hurting cats, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you've always got something going on, and and you've always. Uh, it's it funny when I went to teach college, I drove my college students nuts because I had gotten in a habit when I taught school and when I lecture, I would wander the classroom and and walk around behind them between rows and everything as I'm teaching. And so my college kids were like paranoid. They're like looking around their shoulder because I'm walking behind them. I'm yeah. talking and, and and everything. But it was just a habit uh, because you had to patrol the classroom to make sure that they weren't on their phone or something like that. In fact, you know, it, little schoolers are easy and embarrassed. It's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> you know, you got a kid that's looking down uh, and he's texting on the phone, and uh, and I'll call their name and I'll say, are you on your phone? And uh, no. And I said, then why are you staring at your crotch? Why is it so interesting? <laughs> and, you know, and you watch it just turn beet red and all the kids laugh, you yeah. know, and of course the phone gets put away or yeah. I get a hold of it. Yeah. And, you know, and, but it, you still, it was still difficult. And, 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 you know, plus I really, believe it or not, I had to step up my game even more because uh, the parents expected more for their kids. 
And so I had to come up with more projects. Like I said, we did the Minikube project, and uh, we did uh, an overnight underneath Space Shuttle Atlantis, uh, believe it or not, at Kennedy Space Center. They have what's called overnight adventures where you can bring your school class in, and they sleep in sleeping bags underneath an actual space shuttle. See, that would have made me like school. I would have been all about stuff like that. That's that's, that's awesome. But you know we we have fun. I mean we were uh, we didn't have a proper lab because it was a small school, so we were out in the uh, out on the basketball court and out the the play yard uh, a lot doing stuff and and everything. But you you constantly had to keep coming up, and it, it really was a challenge for me. But I'll tell you what, maybe grow as a teacher even more. And uh, and I love those kids. They were just wonderful kids. And. Um, you know, but we also ran into problems. I'm, I'm going to be frank that I had a couple students that were uh, discipline problems, and unfortunately, mom and dad thought little Johnny could do no wrong. And you've got to understand when you teach private school, the customer is the parents that yep. are paying. Yep. And, and so the customer is always right. And if the customer doesn't like it, then there's not much you can do about it. So. You know, I did that for a year and a half, then I got an opportunity to do schools to space. Let me just hold you there a second, though, because I went to Catholic school, yeah, which was a private school. Right. And let me tell you that not all private schools work that way. Okay. Like, when I was in Catholic school, if you were a problem, you were out. So much so that when I didn't want to be there anymore, the way I got out was by becoming a problem. Yeah, you know, and I, I wasn't really a problem child, but I just didn't want to be in that school anymore. I just didn't, I could, I couldn't handle it anymore. Um, so I think it depends on that. Depends on the ownership of that private right. school, right? Are you willing to fire a customer? Is what it comes down to. Some businesses are, some businesses aren't. And I think that would be like the better job they do, and the longer the waiting list to get in, the quicker they're willing to send somebody out because. Yeah, you're going to take your checkbook away, but there's there's five students right now waiting to get into this class. So if you're going to be disruptive or you're not going to do your work or you're not going to pull your weight, then out you go. So I don't think it's always that way, but I can certainly see how it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it would have been nice there, but, you know, they unfortunately it wasn't that way. But when I got the opportunity of Schools of Space, I, I took it because that, that gave me a chance to give back to the space program. Yeah, because uh, like, that was the one like that's near and dear to my heart. What's it like teaching, you know, college level? Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, know, I know there's all the news stories about the snowflakes and, and, and everything, but listen, I taught uh, the first uh, college gig I had was teaching aerospace technician students. Now, first of all, they want to be there. Yeah, you got to want it. You're, you right. want to be there, yeah. yeah. And. And second of all, they were already disciplined. And I had people that were from age 18 to some that were in their 30s and 40s. And um, But they wanted to be there. They wanted to be a part of the space program. And I had no problem with them. Now I teach aviation graduate. And most of my graduate students, not all of them, but most of them are military. And and I love it because, you know, I said, these are the assignments you're due. They salute and say, yes, sir. And it gets done. done. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and, and I actually have some wonderful discussions with them and stuff and learn from their life experiences. And uh, it, it's a lot of fun. I've got one guy that's in my class. He's actually an Air Force bird colonel, and he's working on his second uh, master's degree. He's retired, but he says, I'm bored to death. 
and he says, I'd like to, to get back into the game. And so he's working on uh, aviation with a specialty in security. And uh, so he's been my student for several classes. And, uh, boy, the things I learned from him is just incredible. Uh, so it's a two-way street. I love learning from them. And, and, and I love teaching college. It's a lot of fun. So what do you think about our, our you know, our, our government school system? Can it be fixed? Can it be saved? No. Is it done? I mean, I say it's done. Okay. Yeah, it, you you can't you can't fix broken. <laughs> you can't fix broken. <laughs> That's what my wife always says. You can't fix broken, and and truly you can't. It, the system is so um, dysfunctional that they don't even see how dysfunctional they are. Yeah. And uh, and I like the idea of returning control back to the local communities. Um, a lot of people don't understand the U.S. Department of Education's budget is about $76 billion a year. Now, contrast that with NASA. Their annual budget is about $19 billion. So we're talking over three times more for the U.S. Department of Education. Which program is successful? Yeah. Yeah. You know? And that's not it, right? See, that's the thing other people yeah. don't understand, right? So that's $76 billion. That's money yeah. that's pilfered from the states, put through the funnel of the federal government, and then trickles back down piecemeal to the states in a yeah, Robin Hood philosophy. To my, to my $75 budget in my classroom. Correct, right? Yeah. But then there's still an entire other component of billions of dollars of funding in each state that's directly state-funded, but mm -hmm. it also comes with a whole bunch of federal overriding mandates. So, well, so it's not just that you take the money away from Texas, give them back half of what you took, Then you tell them how to use it. Then you yep. tell them what they have to do to the point where they're spending their own money on stuff that they don't want to do. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much how it works. And you when know? you said can't fix broken, the way I see it is this: Let's say you came to me and you were like 300 pounds, uh, mm -hmm. you, so you're overweight, and you had a bit of a a, a problem with a substance abuse of some sort. And you right. said, I want to turn my life around. Well, I can tell you what to do, and if you'll do it, yeah, we can fix you, right? You, you have, you're not dead yet, right? You're not in a box, and yeah. the problem's not that bad, and people have been way worse. Okay, if you come to me, and you're 80, and you're 400 pounds, and you've yep. lost two of your feet to diabetes already, you've got three different cancers, you drink, you smoke, and you do drugs, and you say, well, I want to turn my life around and fix it, uh... Dude, not only can I mean the doctors can't like no one like it's you, you've 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 gone too far. There's no fixing this now, right? right? I, I, I just tell them I said you know my best advice is have you made peace with your god? Yeah, right. And that's how I feel about the, the government education system. It needs yeah. to make peace with its god, which is the state, and go off into the sunset. And let's instead of fixing it, let's rebuild something totally new because yeah. the model has been around for 150 years. And as bad as it was, it was better. But we don't need to go back in the year 2017 to 1980 when it wasn't anywhere near. I mean, I remember going to school, and there were, I had problems with the education system. But I can say this. I learned. And yeah. when I wanted to learn, I was able to learn. And if some kid was being a jackass in the classroom, they went away really freaking fast. They did not come immediately back. And when they did come back, they shut up because they didn't want to go away again. Right. Um, There were options. I, you know, I took metal shop. I took wood shop. 
Uh, I took Which they don't have those anymore. And, and, and in the sciences, I took freshwater ecology, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like things like that. There was a Votech program that was pretty damn good for you know a coal region school in central Pennsylvania that was a pretty poor area. And all of that stuff seems to have been wiped out. Um, there is some Votech stuff here and there, but a lot of it just doesn't seem like it's like it's sincere anymore. It's it's you know it's computers, but like that doesn't mean that they're actually learning programming or something like that. Like it's not you know when I was in school, some of my buddies came out of school with um, from from automotive Votech, and they went straight and took their uh, what is it the uh, the um, the certification courses ACE or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, certifications like th- got three of them, you know, within the first six months out of school, and it just doesn't seem like there's anything approaching any of that anymore. And yet, in this day and age, like I wouldn't build the school system the way it's built today, because when I look back and say, well, what was right about you know the 1980s and 1970s, and there was again there was wrong, but there was a lot more right than there is today. But the things we have today weren't available. You couldn't put a computer terminal in front of every child with access to all the information on planet Earth oh, in no, 1985, right? So we shouldn't build the same model. And we, I think it would be easier to me, I'd say up to a certain point, like a standardized education to some degree makes sense, at least standardized for the district or whatever. Right. But at some point, kids need to be able to chase whatever it is they're interested in. Because there's kids that are in sixth grade that are ready for calculus, And there's kids mm-hmm. that are in sixth grade that, you know, they really would be a fantastic cabinet maker by the time they graduated if they were allowed right. to pursue that. And that doesn't and that doesn't mean they're dumber. You know, that's no. the thing about trade schools is they think, well, you go to trade school because you're stupid. Hey, you know what? Aerospace technicians at trade school, you go work on a two billion dollar spacecraft. You ain't stupid. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, you know, the same thing when you're a plumber or something like that or an electrician or whatever. You know what? You're not stupid. You are just – that is your talent and your gift in that area, and you know what you're doing. And that's what I like about with, with uh, President Trump is he's starting to emphasize the vocations. We're getting away from STEM, which we needed STEM, uh, which is science, technology, engineering, math. But he is starting to focus towards vocations because he looks at the, the problem that we have in uh, no replacements – For you know these these craftsmen and these tradesmen and everything that are retiring, yeah. And you know we were having since uh, January of 2015, starting January 1st, 2015, we have 10,000 people a day retiring, and that's going to go on for the next 15 years. These are our baby boomers. 10,000 people a day. That's a huge amount of institutional knowledge. That's a huge amount of skills and, and trades that's going to disappear, and we don't have people in the pipeline to fill it. I mean, when they're doing stories talking about kids that don't even know how to boil an egg, you know, yeah, let alone yeah. change a light bulb, there's, that's where we have failed as a nation because we're not teaching these things to these kids. That's where we have failed as parents if we have not te- taught these basic life skills to our children. Well, and you know, we, I keep hearing a lot about the STEM thing and a lot about the vocational. Yeah. And I, here's how I feel. It's not that we need more people in STEM. We need the right people yes. in STEM pass. And we need the right people in the vocational pass. And we need the right people in you know industrial automation pass. And we need the right people in entrepreneurial pass. And, and the, the problem is 
that what we've done is we've created this falsehood, this false narrative that smart people do these things. Uh -huh. So if the kid is smart enough to pass certain tests, we throw them into these programs and, you know, everything will be great. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of times they don't like it. My, 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 my best friend's ex-wife is uh, today designing closets on a computer. She has a uh -huh. degree in architecture. Mm -hmm. Right, you don't need a degree in architecture to design closets. She's designing closets because she likes it, but she went into architecture because that's where she was kind of shoved because she had the math score, she had the aptitude, and you can make a lot of money. Well, right. along the way, you know, being guided as a kid, no one stopped to ask, like, is this what you actually want to do? And I think we have lost our, we've lost touch with how influential. Young people are who are good young people when they're 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. Like, if they're told to do something, especially today, mm -hmm. they think, well, I should do what I'm being told to do. So they go into fields they have no interest in. So you, we're putting people into STEM programs that are washing out, not because they're not smart enough, because two years into it, this isn't what I really want to do. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and that, that it's frustrating uh, uh, for the kids and for the teachers sometimes. And that, you know, you get these kids that are going to be in something that they, they don't excel at, they're not interested in, but if you put them over here, they will excel and, and, and just blow away your, your expectations, how well they'll do. I, I really believe during grade school and elementary school, or, or elementary school and middle school, it's good to give them a well-rounded exposure to a lot of different things. Sure. But when you start getting into high school, Uh, maybe they at the you, you really need to start looking at their aptitude. Are they going to be good with their hands? If they are, they should be in those uh, basic math courses, uh, so they learn how to do measure and calculations. They should be in those um, industrial arts courses and metalworking and things like that. Get them in there. Let them really start uh, shining and and learning something. And then the same ones that you've got these kids that have an aptitude for college, have an aptitude to be an engineer or whatever, you start getting them into those programs where they start learning that. The sorting probably needs to start happening in high school. But up to that point, give them a well-rounded. Let them have a good exposure so they see a lot of things and they can find what piques their interest. And, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating because they don't do that right now. So I'd like your thoughts on why education is important to survival in this world oh. if the shit hits the fan, right? I mean, because I'm really – I look at some of these people that can't do anything and go, yeah, you know, I, I kind of grew up with a, a prepper mindset even though we didn't call it that. And I remember my dad saying that the biggest problem if we ever did have some kind of catechism would be the people, not the event itself. And I look at it today yeah. and go, oh, it's so much worse because at least people knew how to do stuff, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. The, the, I think the biggest thing for education is, is uh, in fact, the, the entire foundation for education is good reading skills and good reading comprehension. If you cannot do that, then everything else that's built on top of that uh, fails. But that's the big thing. And the only way to become a better reader is practice, practice, practice. That means be a voracious reader. You should be, even after you're out of school, you should be going through a book. And finding something new to learn. Now, to give you an example of what education is important for survival, uh, my day-to-day -day life, uh, Jack, I can work on a $2 billion spacecraft, but if you told me to build a cabinet uh, and gave me a hammer and nails, uh, it would be a sorry state of work. I have no idea. But 
when it came time for us to remodel our condominium, and we were laying tile in the bathroom, putting up sheetrock and stuff. These are things I did not know. But I tell you what, I read books. I went to YouTube and watched videos. You know, I learned. And that's because I had good educational skills that I developed that my teachers helped me develop over the years. So I could learn something. Wine making. I love wine. And um, decided I wanted to make my own wine. Well, you know what? I read books, got all kinds of books on it, and I learned how to make wine, and I make a pretty good wine. And, you know, it's all these different things. If you want to know how to do something, don't wait for someone to, to, to come and teach you. Teach yourself. If you've got good reading skills, get those books. Put them in your library. And, you know, and it's going to come with that with survival skills. It's probably a good idea to have in your library how to plant and, and, and you know, harvest and seed saving and things like that. Uh, I've tried running a garden down here in Florida. I'm sorry it sucks. It just doesn't work. <laughs> but, you know, I haven't been too successful with that. But, you know, but you should have all these things. I've got books back there telling me how to butcher livestock. Because maybe someday I'll need to know how to do that. So it's nice to have a hard copy of it. You know, and you, you need to be out there and learn these things, and you need to have this in your library. And a well-rounded library of all these different skills uh, is, is, I think, essential, especially if you're looking at a survival or prepper-type lifestyle. And you should be forcing yourself to learn something new all the time. That, that's part of growing. Don't stay within your comfort zone. You stay within your comfort zone, then you just stay there until you're in your little casket someday. You need to keep stretching and keep trying to reach. And yes, you will fail. But you know what? You also can learn from that failure. And then you keep on plugging along. I, so. I mean, the way, the way I'm saying this is like lifelong learning. Like you should be yes, learning. Yes, it is. As long as you can fog a mirror, you should be learning something new. Oh, yeah. Um, but every, like, ast every astronaut that I've met, and I've met Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, the shuttle astronauts, all these guys, every one of them, uh, the one common item that they have about them, because they come from all kinds of different backgrounds, even the cosmonauts from Russia, is they are lifelong learners. They have this insatiable curiosity. And I tell you what, they may fly a spacecraft, but at the same time, they uh, one of them may be really into bicycles. He knows how to strip down and put together a, a nice bicycle that you, you go and take out and, and bike for 100 miles. Uh, I've got other ones that are classical musicians and other ones that build aircraft, uh, hand build them. You know, they, and, and it's funny because a lot of them do a lot of things with their hands. And here they are, they're intellectuals where they're flying spacecraft, but yet the stuff that they're pushing themselves and pushing that envelope and, and stretching and growing is actually things that they're learning to do with their hands. I see something that disturbs me as well with people with, with education and confusing education with, with schooling, right? So yeah. I, I've seen these things with people getting interviewed and they're looking for a job. And like you said, you know, I didn't think it would be that hard to find a job because I had a master's degree. But right. I'm seeing people that have three and four degrees and can't find a job. And I'm like, I think yeah. you need some experience instead of, like, how many degrees is really enough? That type of thing. Yeah. And, and, and it really comes down to it. It's like I tell my guys, uh, I said, you're going to get a master's degree 
don't don't hang it on the wall. I said it's like buying a hammer and then hang it on the wall and expect the house to be built. That's not going to happen. You actually got to get out there, use that hammer, learn how to use it, and and you know, and you're going to succeed, you're going to fail, but you know, you're going to progressively get better. That's what you have to do with your degree. There are far too many people that uh, I agree with you. They get a degree, they hang it on the wall, and they say, "Well, I have this degree." Everything should be handed to me. Oh no. <laughs> you gotta get out there and hustle and learn and get that experience. And um, you know, a degree is a tool, just like a tool in your toolbox. And you can either choose to use it and expand on it, or you can choose to let it sit there and collect dust. But if you let it sit there and collect dust, don't expect the job to be handed to you. Don't expect uh, that $100,000 a year salary or anything like that. That's not going to happen. The world's going to laugh at you and say, well, hey, nice little picture frame up there, you know, and they'll move on. They're not going to look at you again. You still have to go out there and perform, and you still have to expand and grow and be proactive. Nobody's going to take care of you, only you. So you need to do that. We've got a lot of people right now that are reaching the end of that, you know, high school career, yeah. and they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. Could you give them some guidance on to help, helping to figure out whether they should be going the vocational route, the traditional college route, no, no post high school education in a formal standpoint? Like, because I think that that's another thing we have to be honest about. Like, no, not everybody should go to college. Right. You teach college, you, and you teach you taught people getting ready to go to college. You know, not all of them should go, right? I mean, right. That's, that's just a lie. And then it doesn't even mean that, like, well, only the smart people should go to college. Like, there's some smart people that would be better suited to the Votech route, or maybe I don't know, like me, are just entrepreneurs at heart, and they can take the I'll take any job I can get so that I can learn path to freedom. Um, How do you advise you know young people to kind of make that evaluation for themselves, especially when everybody and everything and their parents is telling them borrow money and go to college? Well, I, I think I would tell people first of all, make sure your reading skills are up to snuff. If they're not, that's what you need to work on first before you decide to do anything. Because the school of hard knocks is going to be rough if if you can't read well and comprehend and learn. Same thing if you go to college or a vocational school, it's going to be rough unless you don't don't have those basic skills. And unfortunately, the schools don't teach those basic skills very well anymore. If I could hold you right there, I think one of the things I've heard from people that went to college that really weren't prepared was yeah. they, one thing they weren't prepared for was the amount of reading and the speed that they were expected. Like, you know, because you get yes. an assignment in high school, like read chapter seven. You get an assignment in college, like by next week, read the book mm -hmm. and this other book and this essay and be ready to discuss it. Yeah, I know. My first day in college, I walked in. It was, uh, uh, like I said, I want to be a preacher, and I walked into Old Testament history. Dr. Myers taught that. And, uh, you know, I think, eh, Sunday school, you know, no big deal. And he immediately got up, started the lecture, and I was like, oh, man, we got to take notes. And, you know, so I started to take notes. And then he gave us a 60-page reading assignment that was due in two days. Yeah. Uh, on a reference book in the library that we couldn't even check out, that you know we had to go in the library and actually sit down and read the thing and take notes from it. And it dawned on me right then and there, oh, this is not high school, this is not Sunday school, this is, this is the real deal. And I had to step up my game. 
And, um, you know, a lot of kids don't understand that. And, and it's really frustrating because they go into college and they have to take remedial courses. They actually have to learn how to do math. They have to learn how to read and because they were ill-prepared when they walked into school. You need to understand this is your job. When you go into college, that is your job, and you need to give it as much focus and attention as you do any other job that you have, and you're investing in yourself. Now, if you're going to go into college, um, I think I would tell my kids today, you know, look for a vocational school and get that two-year degree in a vocation so that you have some kind of skill to always make a living at, something to fall back on. And you're already going to get your basics. You're going to get your algebra. You're going to get your history, social studies, English, and all that. That'll all be out of the way. Those are college-level courses. But then if you decide that I want to take that degree further and you want to go for a four-year degree, a lot of those credits will transfer. A lot of those basic education courses will transfer, and you still start out as either a sophomore or junior when you start going into a four-year degree. But you may decide that you like the trade that you've chosen, and that's where you're going to be, and you're still going to make very good money. You know, a lot of these guys, they get a two-year degree. It's like nursing. My wife's a critical care nurse, and, uh, you know, was doing six-figure salary working three days a week, uh, you know, after 25-plus years of nursing with a two-year degree. You know, here I was with a master's degree, and I'm like, man, I'd just like to find a job. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know. And you, the next thing you know, you're teaching inner-city schools. Yeah. But yeah. Unlike, the t- unlike the movie they made, you're not allowed to bring a bat with you. Right. Oh, I had a stick, believe it or not. I had an old mop handle that, you know, that, that screwed into a mop. Yeah. And I unscrewed it, and that was my stick. And I carried it around tapping on the floor, and and the kids were a little paranoid. They didn't know if I was going to hit them. I never hit a child with them. Yeah. Never did. But just letting those thoughts cross their mind uh, helped a lot in classroom management. Because, and if they fell asleep, I'd just come in behind and tap the back of their chair. And, uh, and of course, it wake them up. And, uh, so they, and, and after a while, they got used to me having that stick. And they, 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 you know, if I didn't have it with me, they were like, ask it, where is it? Where is it? And, uh, but I would always have it. And I use it as a pointer to point things out and, and, and stuff like that. And, uh, but it, it was funny. I, I carried that stick around all the time. And I think it headed off some problems pretty well. <laughs> I, uh, I had a history teacher that had an arrow. Yeah. I mean, like an actual metal-tipped pointed arrow that he uses a pointer and he gets smack it on desks and all. But everybody actually liked him. Yeah. He was actually good at his job. And that's that, that, See, I think that's one of the things, like why you ran into trouble when you did more, is mm-hmm. the school system, this is part of the, the, the reason it's dead. It's like this, this decaying beast. They don't want anybody to excel too much because no, everybody's don't. supposed to be equal. So if yeah. a teacher excels too much, well, that's not good because the other teachers will feel bad. I mean, yes. that's, that's, and, and like the same with the students, like you can excel, but only if you're going to the gifted classes to excel, you know, and it's well, almost and, like pr- promoting people and, to their highest level of incompetence. And I'm going to tell you, the gifted classes, like they had the gifted classes with a robotics program. That middle school I was at had uh, their robotics program were all state champions. Uh, they did real well. The parents were very, very involved. And that school every year tried to shut that robotics program down. 
because they didn't like the idea that these kids were doing better. And the parents insisted that these kids would not be in the general classroom, that they would have their own English, their own history classes, their own teachers, because they knew that putting them in a general classroom would pull those kids' grades down, and they didn't want that to happen. And so the school did everything they could to try to shut that robotics program down. And, and thankfully, they weren't successful. But they, every year they were trying to, to find a way to cut their funding in and, and, and shut them down and get those kids moved into the general population. And so, you know, gifted programs does not necessarily if, – if your child's in a gifted program at your school, uh, your school does not necessarily mean they like your gifted program because you're now shining. And they don't like people to outshine. They want everybody to be mediocre. It's, and it's, it's frustrating. It's it's that's why we've said it's it's broken beyond repair. Because once yeah, you get yeah. to that point, what what is the point? There isn't right. one anymore. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Aerostem. Uh, Aerostem Consulting. Uh, believe it or not, I, I got this inspiration from you because you're the entrepreneur. And uh, Aerostem Consulting is something I started about three, in fact three years ago. And uh, I wanted to uh, – I, I thought, you know, I'm the only one in the nation that is a nationally certified aerospace technician and a certified educator. And I wanted to take those two careers and combine them. So I started Aerostem Consulting, and my job my, – my company's mission is to bring space into the community in the classroom. And we go to aerospace companies – that have K through 12 outreach programs, and I will uh, either help create, design those K through 12 programs for them. I'll help implement them, or if they already have one in place, I'll come in and evaluate it, and uh, and let them know where they're strong at and where they're weak at. Where can they get the most impact? And uh, Space Tech was actually one of my first big contracts, and I'm still contracted with them, and it, that's Schools of Space. When they called me up, they said, all we got is a name, and we have nothing, and we'd like you to take this and turn it into a national program. And I did that in two years. I went from a name to having a website to um, – Going and starting uh, developing teacher workshops and student presentations where I go and present before the entire student body and stuff. And I fly all around the nation. I've been uh, this year so far. I've already been up to Georgia, uh, Western Michigan, uh, up there uh, in Kalamazoo. Uh, looking at going to Salt Lake City, Utah this summer. And uh, in fact, and I've been asked back to go to Georgia to another school district up there. And, uh, and, you know, my calendar is filling up to a degree and, uh, and it keeps me busy. But, you know, it's, it's a nice program and especially to get out in these rural areas if I can. Because a lot of these kids, um, uh, like Western New York is probably a good example or Pennsylvania. You know, you're familiar with Pennsylvania and some of yeah. the rural communities there. A lot of those kids, they grow up in small towns and they have small town dreams. I did that. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia. I had a small town dream. became a paramedic. And uh, even though I was a space buff, I've been a space buff all my life. But I thought that's out of reach for me. And so I go to these kids in these rural communities and I talk to them and show them that, hey, Many of astronauts actually came from farms, and that's where they learned their work ethic uh, in small towns. Uh, I came from a small town, and I ended up working on a two billion dollar spacecraft. In fact, we ended up working on the entire shuttle fleet. And you know that 
somebody has to be an astronaut, somebody has to be an engineer, somebody has to be an aerospace technician. So why can't it be you that, you know, reach outside of that town, reach outside of your area and start really making your dreams even bigger because you can do this. You just need someone to tell you. Uh, Jack, the biggest story, I, the, the biggest lesson I ever learned through the scouting program was we were 11 years old, and we would gather together for a scout meeting, and our scoutmaster would stand there and put his hands on his hip, and he would look at us and he'd say, Men, this weekend we're going to go spelunking in a cave, we're going to go about a mile underground. Or, Men, we're going to go and we're going to canoe 20 miles, camp overnight, and then we're going to canoe back. And there were no adults around us to say, You're kids, you can't do that. Yes. So yes. we were like, uh, okay. So yeah. then we went and did it, you know. And that's what I want to pass on to these kids, whether they want to go work in the space program or not. The thing is, don't sell yourself short. You know, if you want to dream big and you want to do something, you can go do that. Now, understand, you've got to pay your dues. You've got to get the education that you need. So that means you need to be finding out talking to people that already do this. And, and people that already do these things happily share information and say, hey, this is how I got there. You know, this might work for you. But, you know, it's not going to be handed to you. You're going to have to earn it. You're going to have to work for it. And you're going to have setbacks. But you've got to pick yourself up and keep trying. And, you know, but there's nothing wrong with having a big dream. There's nothing wrong in wanting to be exceptional. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be part of something bigger than yourself. And in our society today, they keep telling these kids it is wrong and that they can't do that. They're supposed to be mediocre. We're all supposed to be equal. and We're supposed to all crawl around in the dirt together. Why? You know, be exceptional. Dream big. You want to be an astronaut? Fine. Find out what schools graduated the most astronauts. Talk and write to astronauts because they'll write back to you. Write to them and find out, hey, what education did you get? What do I need to take? What do I need to do? I know one young man, uh, Blair Mason, uh, that uh, wanted to be an astronaut all his life and uh, ever since he was like three years old. And he went and found out what courses they took. He found out what college graduated the most astronauts, which is the U.S. Naval Academy. And so he worked all the way through middle school and high school to take every science course, every robotics course, computer programming course, math course. And, you know, and it was tough, but he did it. And, and he never lost sight of that dream. And then he was one out of, uh, there was only 200 selected for the U.S. Naval Academy out of, I think there was 20,000 that applied. And he got selected. And he double majored in aerospace engineering and computer programming and came out with 3.98 average. He's now in Pensacola, Florida, doing flight training, learning how to fighter jets. He's well on his career path towards becoming an astronaut. And the young man's not even... 25 yet. Wow. But wow. he is that focused and he learned what was required and what dues he has to pay and what he has to learn to do it. You want to be exceptional. You want to make something out of yourself. No one is going to do it for you. You need to do it for yourself. There'll be a lot of people that will help you. You know, they always talk about there's a lot of people that are bad influences and are willing to help you fail. 
But at the same flip side of the coin, when people see that you're working to succeed, there's a lot of people out there that will help you and, and want to see you succeed. Not because it's a personal benefit to them, but because they want to see you benefit and they want to pass that forward and say, I want to share. This is the great life I'm living. I want to share that with you. This is what you got to do to earn it. I think that's awesome, dude. And I think I can definitely tell you that I have seen the results of somebody being told they can do something. Yeah. Uh, and it won't always be something like be an astronaut or be a pilot, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that you can, whatever it is you want to do, you can figure out how to get close, right? I mean, yeah. that's like, like not everybody that want, that starts out on the pathway to be an astronaut is going to be an astronaut, but if you end up being a fighter pilot that doesn't become an astronaut, have yeah, you so failed? Life. Have you <laughs> failed? I mean, and that's, yeah. it's like taking that first step on that journey, and it sounds like you're doing a lot to, to get people to take that step. So I appreciate you sharing your story yeah. and being with us today, man. Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to just talk about briefly, if you don't mind, sure. is I want to talk to your listeners that are thinking about homeschooling. Um, you can do this. You don't have to have a college degree. You need to know how to read. You need to know how to you know, sit down with your kids' books and read them. Find out what they're learning. Find out how they, a lot of textbooks are laid out very nicely uh, by educators to try to maximize the learning effort. It's just a lot of people don't use textbooks. But uh, learn, sit down and read these things and learn them. And guess what? You can turn around and regurgitate and teach these to your kids and teach these concepts. And because you are an adult and you're their parent. You have these life experiences where you say, you know what, what I'm seeing my child learning in this textbook, this is how we apply it in real life. And if you don't know how it applies in real life, find somebody within your network of friends that does. There's no, there's no reason why you can't tap into your network of friends. You tap into them now if you need information. Hey, you know, I don't know how to uh, work on my car with this particular problem. You know a friend that's a mechanic. You know, what well, you can use that same network when you go to teach your kids. But don't be afraid of teaching your kids. And you'll find out that your kids will get a much more well-rounded education, and they will also uh, be able to get a lot of things done a lot quicker. If you imagine how much time is wasted in school going from class to class, <laughs> then getting the class settled down, you got little Johnny has decided he's going to act up, you know, so the teacher has to stop. I mean, I would teach for 45, 50 minutes in a class, but actual teaching time where I actually taught these kids was probably uh, 10 minutes out of a 50-minute class. And that 10 minutes is broken up because... You know, you've got these disruptions going on and stuff like that. And it's very frustrating. If you have that one-on-one -on -one time with your children and you're working with them on their task and, and you make them do their task, don't, don't do it for them. You know, don't do their homework. <laughs> make them do it. But you can do that. And like the Minikube project where I had my kids send stuff to the edge of space, I actually wrote the book on that. And that's available uh, online and on Amazon. It's called uh, Classroom Laboratory at the Edge of Space, Introducing the Medicube Program. And it's a guide. And you, believe it or not, as a parent, can do this as a parent-child project where you can actually put together a science package or a technology package and contract with this company. I think the price right now is $340, and that's not much. And you can have your child actually send an experiment uh, to the Edge of Space. 
And when it comes back, the cube not only comes back with your experiment so you can open and evaluate, but also what comes back is high-definition video, high-definition pictures, a certificate thanking your child for helping explore the boundaries of space, you know, and, and all kinds of things. I mean, this is a real neat opportunity. And But, you know, you can do these kind of projects. You know, it's like all around your farm there, Jack. There's all kinds of science and ecology and everything like that that you can do with, with your children. I have and, a high school senior working for me as a farmhand right now. I'm telling you, he's yeah. learning more about physics and mechanics yeah. you know, here than he's learned in school. And he's a good student. You know, yeah. like from from what I know of his grades and his SAT scores, he's, he's what the system calls a great student. But I had to teach him how to work a ratchet. Because yeah. I, I had him replace a starter motor on the, my lawn tractor. And I didn't say, like, here's how it works. Do it and walk away. I sat there and walked him through it, you know. Yeah. And so he's turning the ratchet. And, you know, it'll ratchet and ratchet and ratchet. And it'll get to a point where it's not ratcheting anymore because the, the bolt's too loose and you're just going back and forth with it. So you got to right. reach in there and hold on to it to take the bolt out. And he couldn't figure out how the freaking ratchet worked. And this kid's 18 years old and, you know. Going off to college next year can't work a ratchet. Right. I but mean, now he knows. Now he knows because yeah. you get out and do some real things. And, I mean, yeah. those types of things are important. <laughs> and it's not just important to your general education <laughs> understanding. It's also, like, not right. getting ripped off in life. The person that can't work a ratchet is the person that pays $1,200 for a repair on their car that even if they yes. didn't want to do it, they should have paid $300 for. Yes. Because they have yeah. no understanding of anything. Right. And the thing is, it's our job to teach them, and, and they're going to learn all these little tricks and stuff like that as these, these, these problems come up, and, and we teach them that. I remember in, in the, the private school, the middle school, I remember I was going over something about the, the sign, oh, writing lab reports. And, uh, and I, one of my little sixth grade girls, you know, was just downfalling and everything. She said, well, Mr. Cecil, uh, I don't know how to write a lab report. And I said, wow. I said, well, it's a good thing you're in school. I said, because it's your job to learn it, and it's my job to teach it to you. I said, if you already knew how to do this, you don't need to be here. You know, and I said, does anybody already know how to write a lab report? Because if you don't, if you already know how to write one, go ahead and leave. And I got one boy that stood up. He's being a smart aleck. One boy stood up, and I said, whoa, 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 wait. We're going to have a little quiz before you go. And then I started quizzing him about it, and he's like, okay, I don't know how to do it. And I said, you will by the end of the school year. And I said, you will know how to write one well enough that you can take that lab report into a laboratory, give it to a technician, and they can repeat your experiment. And I'll tell you what, Jack, they did. They were writing quality reports that uh, sixth grade, 11 years old. Uh, in fact, if you look in the back of uh, the – I sent you a copy of my book. If you look in the back of the book, there's the lab, uh, I've got samples of lab reports that my kids wrote, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And the quality that they wrote, I'll put them up against any other sixth or seventh, eighth grader out there in the public school. Awesome, but, man. You know, awesome. you know, it's what needs to be done. So, you know, you got to be there. You got to be involved with these kids. You got to help them and do their repetition and 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 make them practice, practice, practice. Just like learning a musical instrument, they have to practice. And you know, if you want to be a homeschool parent. You can do that. You're going to fail some days. You're going to have some problems some, you know, some days. Yeah, okay, there's a learning curve. But you will learn. And get out those teaching books and learn. And, and more, most importantly, sit down and read your child's textbook. 
And then you'll start getting some ideas when you start thinking out of the box. Say, well, you know what? They're talking about this concept. I remember we use this concept all the time, let's say uh, economics. You know, maybe I should show them how to open a bank account. Maybe I should show them what's involved in a budget and things like that. And, you know, you can do that. And you can show them all these real-world skills and how it applies to these theories that's being taught in the books. You know, but you can do this. And, and, I, and I want to encourage your listeners out there, if they're really thinking, if they're so dissatisfied with their public school system and they cannot afford a private school, and not all private schools are good, you know, you've got to still be out there and evaluate and figure out if they're actually teaching. But you can do homeschooling, and you can be a wonderful teacher to your child. Well, I, I can tell you, like you're saying about the waste of time, I had a family yeah. that lived north of me north of me on my road in Arkansas. They homeschooled their kids. They had three, three boys. Yeah. And uh, they were usually done by February for the year with the required mandated stuff. Yeah, and, and then, then it's all extra stuff. And it was all like self-directed learning after that, and they would go on trips and you know things and stuff like that to learn whatever they wanted to learn. Like basically, they did a a formatted homeschooling to the state's requirement, and then unschooling for the rest of the year. Right. And uh, you, people will say, well, like, well, what can they do when they get done with that? So the oldest, I don't know what the other two are doing, but the oldest one, I actually was interviewed by the, uh, the security department for the Air Force for his security clearance because I was given as a reference. Right. And he is now working on uh, missile, uh, missile defense systems for the Air Force. Awesome. So it's not like, you know, you can't go on to do good things after this. And the, the homeschool kids are yeah. killing the science fairs. They're killing the, the, the spelling bees. They're killing the scholarships. They're killing it all over the place. So And they, are, and they don't want to talk about it. And, and, and they always argue. They say, well, you know, they, they don't get the social skills. You know what? There's an easy way to fix that. You go and you have the play dates with other kids. And there's actually homeschooling co-ops. Uh, my yeah. sister who homeschooled her children was part of a homeschool co-op and they actually had parents come in that maybe a parent was a scientist so they had them come in and actually talk about science put and, them in dance have them play baseball have yeah. them play basketball get them into clubs i mean there's yeah. that's a nonsensical bs excuse man i i yeah i, I agree and, and what kind of socialization are they getting how to how to pass drugs in the hallway how to threaten your teacher that you're going to go to their house right you, i mean you, like yeah, what, what you exactly want them to learn the, how to commit date learn rape like yeah yeah how to commit date rape? Like, what what social skills are they missing out on that are so important that can't be learned through voluntary association? Absolutely. You know, the school thing is, is you're always shoved into a classroom and associated with people you don't want that you would never associate with outside the classroom. You know, and the thing is, is when you do these like dance clubs and stuff like that, and send them to these kind of social events. Uh, as a homeschooler, what you're doing is you're sending them to where they're going to get positive social reinforcement, not the negative stuff like learning how to sell the drugs and all that crap. You know, and and that's good. You can control not only their education and make sure they're getting into good education, but you're now controlling their socialization where you're making sure they're getting positive social role models. And you know, so you you, it, it's just so much more advantageous. To, to homeschool compared to some of these public schools. And your kids will thank you in the long run for it. 
they'll hate you for a while when you're giving them assignments because <laughs> that's just the way it is being a teacher. You know, you've got to put your teacher hat on and 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 do it. And yes, they're going to hate you when you say, "Well, I need a 500-word essay on this subject," and and then you tear it apart when they turn it in and make them go back and rewrite it. But you know, you need to do things like that. And but it can be done. And don't think you have to have a college degree to teach your children. If you can read and comprehend what you read and you can read your child's textbook, guess what? You can teach your child. Absolutely, man. Well, Greg, I think we've worn it out, but I appreciate you being here with us today. Okay. I'd like to do a plug for my book if you don't. Yeah, mind. man, sure. Okay. Uh, my book is called Classroom Laboratory at the Edge of Space, Introducing the Minicube Program. It is on for sale on Amazon. Uh, it's a guide where you can do a project, either a home school, public school, private school, or just a, 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 a parent-child project uh, where you can take uh, and put science payloads or technology payloads or whatever floats your boat, whatever you want to do. Put these in these little cubes, decorate the outside of the cubes, and you send it out to a company out west called JP Aerospace. And for $340, they fly it. It goes up 20 miles, hangs above the earth there. You can see the earth down below, the band of our atmosphere, and the blackness of space above. And then eventually the UV radiation breaks the balloon down and it falls back down to Earth. They recover it. They send it back to you. Your child can open it up and see how their package turned out. And the guide has everything from teaching your child how to do research, write lab reports, write proposals, to uh, coming up with a question and learning about the scientific method. And it really is. It's a science project from the question all the way to the end to the communication, which is your lab report, and all the checklists and uh, stuff that you can photocopy and use with the kids. I tried to make it, a, make it a complete package so it can be a real neat science project uh, for your children. And, uh, and you can use all of it or just a little bit of it. You modify it the way you see fit as the parent of your child. But And it's also a nice book to go and, and give as a gift to your school library uh, and give it to for their teacher's library if you want. But it's on Amazon. Uh, I believe I sent you a link a while back, so if you can post that. But uh, it's on Amazon, and it's called Classroom Laboratory at the Edge of Space, Introducing the Minicube Program. Also, if you're homeschooling your child and you're going to get into teaching them about space flight, uh, both human space exploration and robotic space exploration. Schools to Space has a free website with resources for you. It's called www.schools-to-space.com. And you are free to use it. There's educator resources. There's student resources. And they can learn everything from downloading paper models about spacecraft to building your own air-powered model rocket launch system out of PVC pipe to um, uh, learning about human spaceflight and different astronauts and things like that. So please feel free to go to that site and, and use it in part of your homeschool curriculum or share it with your teachers that are teaching your kids. So, But that's my plug, and I, and I want to thank you very much for allowing me to be on the show. 
Awesome. Well, I appreciate you, and I'll have links to your book, your website, et cetera, in the show notes as well for everybody today. And, okay. and thanks for being with us today, Greg. All right. And if anyone has any questions, please feel free to forward their emails to me. Okay, we'll do. And uh, okay. also, they can post uh, post them in the uh, the comments in the blog. I'm sure. That sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thank you. Uh, great guy, great interview. Love what he's doing. Love the impact that he's making on the minds of young people. And uh, really happy that this is the kind of person that's been listening to the show for almost the full nine years. I mean, Greg's one of our early adopters, and he's been with us for that long, and he's still listening to us. That must mean we're doing something right. Also, I kind of, you know, I, there's things I, I'm right about, and I know I'm right about. I don't want to be right, but I can't deny that I'm right. And and the, the state of our educational system is one of them. And I think the next time that I come down on, on, on government education and I hear from people telling me, we can make it better, we can fix it, you know, it's not the teacher's fault, whatever, whatever. Uh, I, I'm just going to refer them to this interview. Um, I, I think you really get the truth when you get somebody that was on the outside and then went to the inside. Because they know what the real world is actually all about. They know how things actually work. And then they go to the place that's supposed to be preparing our children for that 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 outdoor space, so to speak, and they see that it just can't really work the way that it's supposed to anymore. It's time for an evolution in education, and I agree with Greg wholeheartedly. If you're thinking about homeschooling, there is a way to make it work, and it may be the best thing you can do for your children. It's at least worth giving a try to. It's not like a. It's not like you can't change your mind if it doesn't work for you. Don't be afraid to give it a try. You know, one of the things Greg said today was. It, it makes such a big difference in somebody's life when somebody tells them, you can do this. There are other options than the three that you've been given. And any of them are open to you if you'll do the work to get there. Think about that if you're one of those families that say, well, I'd like to homeschool, but I don't think that I can. I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying you're wrong if you don't. Don't take it that way. I'm saying if you really want to, yes, you can. And what you do matters, something I've been telling you for almost nine years. With that, if you like the show and the, the work we do and the stuff that we do community-wide, one of the ways that you can really help us out is by doing your Amazon shopping by going to tspaz.com first. That is T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You go there, you can click a link, you get on over to Amazon, see the deals of the day, search for whatever you were going to buy. And whatever you buy, doesn't matter what it is, we get credit because we were the affiliate that referred you there. Okay, so it's an easy way to support us. I also do reviews every day, and I'm back on my fishing kick today. I have the Ugly Stick Elite Spinning Rod for you today. Um, the one that I particularly bought most recently is a five foot six inch two piece uh, light action model, and I love it. I paired it up with a Akuma ABF30, which is a, the, the bait feeder model of the Akuma Avenger. Uh, what that means is that when you have line on that reel, you can flip a little switch. And if a fish takes the line, it spools out at whatever tension you let it, kind of like a like a regular bait casting line. But as soon as you pick it up and click it over, it goes to whatever your main drag is for fighting the fish. Now, this doesn't mean open the spool and let the line fly out. This means you're basically setting the drag really, really loose on one setting and really uh, tight on the other. But that's not really what we're reviewing here. We're reviewing this rod. Um, I think if you're looking for a new fishing rod, you owe it to yourself to check out the Ugly Stick Elite line of spinning rods. They're not the most expensive thing, and they're not the cheapest thing, which generally is where you get the most bang for the buck, and I think that's the case with these. I used to be really big on the 100% graphite, super-sensitive fishing rods, and after I broke two or three tips off very expensive rods, I went, you know, that's, that's not really a good investment of my money. 
I gave these things a try, I guess it's 20 years ago. And uh, not maybe this particular line, but Ugly Sticks as a whole 20 years ago. And I want you to know, they're plenty sensitive. I can tell what that fish is doing, especially with a good quality line. The line that I recommend is, you know, for most fishing is actually in this review too. It's Spiderwire Ultracast Monofilament. That line and a light action ugly stick, and if you can't see, tell what's going on, you don't know how to fish, or you have some problems with your fingers or something. Uh, but it's just a solid rod. I've only ever seen one ugly stick rod broken in my life. I was on Sanibel Island, and there was a guy fishing for sharks, and he had a medium-heavy ugly stick with a, a pretty good-sized reel on it. Uh, I think he was using 100-pound braid, if I remember right. And he hooked what we, we were pretty sure was a large bull shark. I'm talking like probably 800 pounds or more, bull shark. He's not going to land this fish. What they should have done when they realized what they had is they should have cut the line, honestly. Because uh, he's just not going to land that fish. What he ended up doing is his two buddies grabbing by the waist, like kind of around his, like the, the waistband of his drawers. And they were holding him because this thing was pulling him in the water. And they had three guys pulling back, and the guy had his feet anchored down, and he starts tensioning the drag and trying to stop because he's just running. And he tensions and tensions and tensions it. Uh, apparently, the, the rod did give out before the 100-pound braid, and it might have been heavier line than that. I don't know. But all I know is this, this, this gear was not stopping this fish. And when the, when the rod snapped, it snapped in three pieces, like it snapped in a, like a smaller, shorter piece came out of the center, hit him right in his freaking beak and bloodied his nose. Um, he was pretty upset. Um, he was more upset about his rod than his face. It wasn't that bad, but it did look like it hurt. And I just say lesson learned, right? Like, there's a limit to what equipment can do, and when you're beyond the limit, unless you're going to die without giving it a chance, let it go. He didn't, but I mean, that's the extreme. That's the extreme. The ugly sticks, they don't break unless you've done something wrong, like try to fight a 900-pound bull shark with a rod made for fish that weigh, you know, 100 pounds. Uh, which is what he did. This, the rod that I partic in particular reviewed today, you know, is, is for your light action stuff, panfish, mid-sized catfish, stuff like that. Um, the, the line itself comes in sizes from four foot six to seven foot six, and it actions from ultra light to medium heavy. It's a great lineup of rods, um, core candles, really great stuff. Check it out today. The Ugly Stick Elite Spinning Rod TSP Item of the Day on Amazon at tspaz.com tspaz.com Alright. Next up, let's talk about the song of the day. The song of the day today is actually a song that I love, but I'm not in love with the version we're going to play. It's a cover. 1992 uh, Ugly Kid Joe released a song called Cats in the Cradle. And uh, disaffected teens all over uh, America discovered an incredible piece of music and thought, wow, that sounds a lot like my life and my relationship with my dad. And, uh, you know, songs kind of stick around for a good four or five years after they come out, if they do well. And uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of folks heard that song, you know, five, ten years later after it was uh, released. Of course, you know, the thing is that it was released, of course, 18 years earlier by Harry Chapin. The original version of that song is the one I think probably the majority of this audience is more familiar with. So why did we select this one today? I, well, John Adam, when he sent me the list of the you know the songs for the next 10 episodes, said it's it, it really kind of marks the the era of covers. Like musicians have always covered other musicians' songs. 
But the 90s really kind of had a bunch of breakout, successful covers. And in all different genres of music, rock, pop, country, um, you name it. And even the rap, you know, R&B world grabbed onto certain music from 20, 30 years ago and put it into their own format, sometimes for good, sometimes not so much. I actually really like this version of this song. I just like the original version by Harry Chapin better. And I wonder if there's a reason for that. I wonder if it's not so much that the version is better. It's just the version that I know more, that I came to know, that I came to love first. Had I heard it the other way around, if Ugly Kid Joe had done it first and Harry Chapin was a young guy that came around today and did it just like he did it all the way back in 1974, would I say, oh, it's, it's nothing compared to Ugly Kid Joe's version? I think there's a lot of that that goes on in general, gener, general, generationalism. That if a song really is good, and then it's redone by somebody else, that the person that heard it first the old way will always prefer it the old way, and the person that heard it first the new way will always prefer it you know, better the new way. I can tell you that that's true with a cover from the 80s for me. I remember one day I had this, uh, this, this tape that I put together. You know, I'd made a tape. We used to call them mixtapes. Uh, kids today will never make mixtapes. They have playlists and, and uh, Pandora channels, and I have Pandora channels. I'm not putting them down to say the world's changed, you know. So I had this 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 mixtape that I'd made. And it was all kind of like kind of jams, you know. And uh, it, like I remember one of the other songs on it was was a, a newer song at the time. It was called "Beds Are Burning" by Midnight Oil. And I was going to go fishing that weekend with my uh, with my uncle and his buddy Graver. And these guys, you know, older than me, and you're trying to trying to get along with older people as a kid. So I made this tape up, and I figured they would dig it. And one of the songs I put on it was Green River. You know, Green, Green River by Creedence Clearwater Revival, except I put the cover on by Alabama, the country band Alabama. It's actually a really damn good version of that song. They hated it. Now, I actually put that on there because I knew the original and uh, didn't have it. But I knew that that was like their music and that maybe they would appreciate it and they didn't. I didn't get it. I think I get it now. What you hear first, if you like it, becomes what you prefer unless somebody really does a better job. Is this a better job? I don't know. But I do know the song has the same meaning when it was released in the 90s as when it was released in the 70s as it does today. That when we're raising our children, we need to be involved in their lives. Or when they get older, they might not find time to be involved in ours. That's good advice, especially when we're talking about education. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today I got a lot to do. He 